Luke chapter number 5, and we're going to begin in verse number 12 again, like we did last week. The title of the sermon is, Who Can Forgive Sins? Um, A good part of Jesus' ministry was spent teaching in all the different synagogues in, in Galilee. And as the, the, his fame grew, the, the crowds grew larger. Matter of fact, on one occasion, if you remember, the crowds were so large that he taught from a boat on the Sea of Galilee. We've already seen that. We're going to see that again. But it wasn't just the teaching that drew such large crowds. He healed he performed, we call them exorcisms. And that drew people to him. He, he is, the difference between Jesus and the different places of healing around was that he actually healed. And the power of God was upon him. Last week, we saw Jesus heal a leper. And this man's outward transformation is a picture of the inward transformation of anybody that comes to Christ in faith. And so today we're going to see that that Jesus directly claims to forgive sins and for the very first time begins to draw questions from the religious leadership. So let's stand together and we'll read Luke chapter 5 verses 12 to 26. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for proof to them. But even now, even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, there were some men bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding... Okay, so we're way off here. I don't know what's going on. Let me get back for those who... Um, now I lost my place completely. I tell you what, we're going to go, we're going to go to verse number 19. How's that? There we go. But finding, I'm reading my text, not looking at the screen, sorry. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on a roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, 
rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Lord, I need you. I ask that you'll take your word, open minds and hearts, and I pray that you'll create understanding. Help us to change our minds where we need to change our minds, change our behavior where we need to change our behavior, and be saved, those of us who need to be saved. Amen. Thank you. So as I said last week, these two incidences are incidents are related and they're designed to teach a certain truth. So the first little section we saw this man full of leprosy. Most likely he was disfigured to the point that when you looked at him, you immediately just thought leprosy. He was the picture of leprosy the picture of disfigurement. Most likely, um, he, was, he was an outcast. He was alienated from society. He was alienated from his family and friends. He had no hope. That is until Jesus came to town. Let me repeat that. He had no hope until Jesus came to town. Isn't that a wonderful he was desperate. He was also humble and full of faith. And he knew that if he was going to be cured by Jesus, or if he was going to be cured, Jesus was the only one that was going to do that, right? Jesus, the Bible says in Mark 143 or 141, he was moved with pity. And Mark said that he healed him. John, Luke said that he healed him. And immediately he was whole, he was cleansed, and he was now able to be part of the community. And he went telling the good news to all. Now this is a picture of our salvation. We are disfigured by sin, aren't we? We are outcasts from the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. We have no hope. Paul said that we are strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But when Jesus saved us, he cleansed us. And that's, that's a key word here with the leper, is cleansed. Christ cleansed us from all unrighteousness. Our sins are forgiven and we're made whole again. Paul said it this way. He said, but now in Christ, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were far off from the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. We were outcasts. We were far off from God, and he brought us near. Just like Jesus did to the leper. We also see in Galatians that Paul said, and if you are Christ's, 
then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In other words, all the promises to Abraham and his offspring are eternalized, and we who are in Christ, according to Paul in Galatians 3.29, now inherit those promises. Isn't that wonderful? It is. In chapter 5, verse number 16, Luke 5.16, Luke said that, that Jesus would withdraw to desolate places to prayer. And prayer is what powered his ministry. The more that demands were placed upon him for ministry, the more important he thought it was to go somewhere quiet and pray. And we, dear Christian, we have a greater need of prayer. We have a greater need for God's help, don't we? Man, I, I tell you what, every year I'm in ministry, I feel a greater need to humble myself before God. I, I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, we were two years in Hawaii ministry. We m left there and I thought, man, that ministry was hard. It was hard, wasn't it? Then we spent the next 13 years in Memphis. We left there and thought, man, that ministry was hard. 12 years in Wisconsin, that ministry was hard. Four years here, this ministry is hard. As a matter of fact, let me stick another word in the hard place. It's impossible. It is impossible without the Holy Spirit, without the power of God, and without prayer. Ministry is impossible. And so Jesus went to pray. We have an even greater need to withdraw to desolate places and pray. As it was for Christ, so it is for Christians. Private prayer. Let me say this. Please, everybody hear this. Private prayer is the root of successful service to Christ. Private prayer is the root of successful service to Christ. That's what empowers your ministry. Mothers, pray. Fathers, pray. Teachers, pray. Evangelizers, pray. That's the power behind your ministry. I'm, you're going to get so tired of hearing me say this because Luke is full of prayer. So just buckle up and be ready for me to tell you to pray all the time. Now in this passage, in the next section that we're going to look at today, there are two other groups of people that we meet. The first group is found in verse number 17. Look at it with me. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers... Oh, let me just... I'm going to say this before I finish the verse. Luke says, on one of those days. This tells us that Luke is not saying next and next. He's not looking at things in a chronological order. He's teaching with a point. I said that these two things are connected. And this is how they're connected. He's, he's making a point here. On one of those days, he, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea from Jerusalem. And Matthew tells us that, they, that this teaching was going on in Capernaum. That's, that's where Jesus is teaching. And he had some new people in his audience. The Pharisees. Now, who are the Pharisees? Well, we don't actually know where Pharisees came from. 
exactly when they were started, probably sometime after the exile. But the word Pharisee from parash, which means uh, to separate, they were the separated ones. They separated themselves to the law. They separated themselves to God. And they thought they separated themselves to righteousness. And they disdained anything or anyone in their mind who violated that separation. Now, the separation was their terms of separation. The Pharisees were dedicated to the Old Testament. Now, that's a good thing, isn't it? At that time, there was no New Testament. Isn't that a good thing? To be dedicated to Scripture? But they were also dedicated to what is called, what we call the oral law. The oral law. We could call that like uh, the oral traditions. Matter of fact, you see a lot of it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus says, you have heard. You have heard. A lot of times when he says that, it's the traditions of the Pharisees that he's knocking down. Uh, Sometimes he's amplifying scripture there as well. But it's their oral traditions. The Pharisees believed good things. For example, they believed the Bible. They believed in angels. The resurrection, they believed in demons and other good things. The Sadducees didn't believe in any of these things. The Pharisees did. Now what's interesting about the Pharisees, you know what they were? They were lay people. They were not priests at all. No Pharisee was a priest. And so um, they, they were lay people. They, were, they, were, um, they believed in a coming Messiah They were expectant. They knew the passages in the Old Testament that described and predicted the Messiah. And in their zeal to follow Scripture, you know what they did? They wanted to be so certain that they followed Scriptures, you know what they did? They added to it. Does that sound familiar? How much did they add? Over 600 rules. I've been to a few churches like that, by the way. <laughs> I grew up in that atmosphere. They had good intentions originally, but they went about things wrong. They had so many rules in the oral law that it was a burden to follow them all. You had to be a, in a, a doctor of law just to understand them all. What, what ends up happening with the Pharisees is the Pharisees create this impenetrable, impossible system of self-righteousness. Nobody could follow their system of self-righteousness. But they themselves believed that that their fastidious attention to detail and all these little prescriptions had been given to them or granted them righteousness. Let Let me give you a couple. And, and you're going to see this very quickly in Luke. I'm going to mention this in a minute in the sermon. Jesus gets sideways with them very quickly in Luke, in the next chapter. And the, the biggest way that Jesus gets sideways with them is on the Sabbath, Shabbat. One of their rules is that if you're outside and you hawk a loogie on the ground, that has just created clay and you have worked on the Sabbath. No lie. That's one of their 600 rules. 
Can anybody follow all those rules? That's how minute they were. Jesus said they tithe mint and dill. Could you imagine sorting out all those little seeds? Anyway, the Pharisees thought that keeping the law, their laws granted them righteousness. But with all their iniquity, or all their meticulousness, they missed an important thing. This is, this is how, turn to Luke chapter 11. Hold your finger here. If you have a paper Bible, turn to Luke chapter 11. We'll read a verse together. I didn't put this one on the screen. Verse number 42. I already mentioned it. This is Jesus. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. So these Pharisees thought they were good enough to get to heaven. But what did they lack? They lacked love. They lacked grace. They ultimately lacked salvation. Turn back to Luke chapter number 5. And so with all this going on, by the time you get to Jesus' day, they have become corrupt. One commentator said this. Let me read what one of the guys said about him. The Pharisees had developed into self-righteous, hypocritical, degenerate, filled with spiritual pride, living according to external rules and prescriptions, totally obscuring the true character of the law of God and not loving God at all, but rather loving themselves. They are the rankest legalists. They live under the most deadly illusion, the most deadly delusion, and that is that they belong to God when in fact they don't. That's how one commentator um, talked about them, Jesus talked about them even worse, didn't he? He said, you're the, your father, the devil. Now, so that's one group. Another group mentioned here is a subgroup. That is the teachers of the law. Well, who are the teachers of the law? They were, they were commonly known as the scribes. These were the, the Pharisees of the Pharisees. When you see Pharisee, the scribes and the Pharisees, know that the scribes are like the elite shop troops of the Pharisees. They were the doctors of law. They were the top, the most knowledgeable Pharisees. And, and these are the men that are listening to Jesus. These men probably had most of the Old Testament memorized. And all the rules and everything else. Now, what I want to do is make a contrast here because this is going to be very important and it sets the stage for the next few sermons in Luke that we go to when it comes to the scribes and Pharisees. Who is Jesus? Jesus was the most perfect revelation of the eternal God ever. When he was on earth, God was never so clearly manifest as he was in Jesus. He manifests the nature of God, the character of God, the purpose of God, the will of God. All these were wrapped up in who Jesus is. And this is important to understand as we begin to get into the section of Luke where Luke highlights his, his conflict with the, with the Pharisees. The Sadducees, the scribes and Pharisees became increasingly hostile towards Jesus. 
And here's the thing. They knew the scripture. If anyone knew, should have known that Jesus was the Messiah, it is these people. Because there's nobody who more clearly manifested God than Jesus Christ. Now Luke makes a clear statement in verse number 17. Let's look at it. He says, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, now this is not a passing comment. Luke is tying this statement with the preceding statement that Jesus consistently went to a desolate place to pray. He's tying these two things together. He's tying the power of God with the prayer that came before it. So important, isn't it? Okay. Do you remember Luke chapter 4, verse number 18? Look at, look at it with me. Verse number 18 of chapter number 4. It says this. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed. We thoroughly have covered that in the past. In, in this, his ministry is the inauguration of the kingdom of God. In chapter 4, verse number 43, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's healing every disease. He's banishing demons. In reality, this is important. What Luke is doing here, he is telling us that this is a foretaste of eternity. There's no disease because Jesus conquered every disease. There's no evil, no demons because Jesus conquers every demon. There's perfect health. There's perfect understanding of Scripture. Jesus' ministry in Galilee is a foretaste of the eternal kingdom where there will be no sickness or evil. And this fact, by the way, was not lost on the scribes and Pharisees. They understood completely what was going on, but they didn't like it. Now, verse number 18 tells us that there were some men there who wanted their paralyzed friend to be healed. Look at verse number 18. And behold, there were some men bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. They were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus of finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, he went, they went up on the roof, let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now that had to be a sight, didn't it? I'm going to explain a little bit about that in just a moment. But there were so many people around Jesus. Can you imagine? These men obviously had seen Jesus before. They wanted a friend healed. There's these massive crowds. They number in the thousands. And they're bringing a guy on a cot. How are they going to get even close to Jesus with that many people? This is frustrating to this group of men. And so, because they had this friend who was paralyzed, and they were desperate for him to get the kind of healing that only Jesus could give, yet there was no way to get inside, especially carrying a stretcher. And so they're facing a significant obstacle. As people often do when they're trying to help their, bring their friends to Christ, suddenly one of them had an inspiration. What if we climbed up the staircase, got onto the roof, and lowered him down? And so they got up on the building. They started pulling the, the roof tiles away so that they could lower him down. Now this had 
just to cause a stir. Now, this story is a powerful example of, of Christian compassion. I want you to notice the specific kind of compassion. It's the compassion that gets people to the Savior. There's a, a common belief today that compassion is only constrained to we're going to go to the homeless shelter or we're going to go out and do this and their acts. But what you find in Scripture consistently is that compassion is linked to the pronouncement of the gospel. It's actually at odds with the common idea of what people think is compassion. These men loved their brother, and when they saw that something could be done about his disability, they did everything in their power to help him, to get him the help that he needed. And so this is a, this is a strong encouragement to us. We, as believers, take care of the body as an opportunity to take care of the soul, right? That, that's, that's the reason we do that. It's, it's the opportunity to take care of the soul. It's a powerful example of Christian evangelism. What people need more than anything else is for someone to bring them to Jesus. Whatever trouble these men went through to bring their friend to Jesus, it was worth it. And yet, so often, we overlook the little things that we do to get people to Jesus. What are the little things that we can do to get people to Jesus? Well, we can invite a friend to church. We can offer to pray with someone. I've, I've told you that, that when I was uh, uh, on the fire department EMT, that, that I would pray with people that were in the back of the ambulance sometimes. They would want that prayer. I had to be careful. The hospital didn't like me doing that too often, but the people really appreciate it, right? Following up with people. Um, uh, offering to pray. Bring a Christ-centered perspective into a conversation or sharing the basic facts of the gospel. What people need is a direct and personal encounter with Jesus Christ. So we should do whatever we can to bring them to a place where they can experience Jesus' healing touch. And by healing touch, I'm talking about the gospel touch. Who do you know that needs Jesus? To what lengths are you willing to go to in order to get the gospel to them? Now, let's talk about these roof tiles for just a minute. The common picture that we have, because of the way our houses are constructed, is that uh, they just went up there and there's a living room. They just start pulling all these tiles up. The houses of the day, somebody who had roof tiles had means because roof tiles were expensive. The word translated tiles here is karanos, which we get ceramic from. Okay, They were ceramic tiles. They were st strong, strong enough to pe for people to walk on. And a misconception, I believe, and this is, this is my belief. I, I want to make that very clear. I'm not an archaeologist just in study and, and what we've learned over in Israel. I do not believe that they were pulling the tiles off the people's living room. This is somebody with means. And the houses of people with means look something like this. I know the picture is small, but I want to point this out. This is a cutaway view, and people would have, remember, there's extended families living here. If you had five sons, all five sons might be living with you. And so the houses, they would be divided into different rooms. And there's a roof here, okay? 
But in the middle, see the courtyard? Many times, portions of the courtyard were covered with removable roof tiles. So that if it were a cooler day and they were drying something out, they could remove the tiles. Does that make sense? And so think about where Jesus would be. Would he be in one of these small inner rooms? And if you've ever been to Capernaum, you know how small those rooms are. They're tiny. You didn't fit a crowd of people in these tiny little rooms, but the courtyards could be a pretty decent size. And so it's my belief, and actually our guide in Israel believes, that they lowered this guy down into this middle courtyard where the family would gather, they would dry uh, grain sometimes and, and, and do all sorts of things. There was a crowd of people in there. I don't know if that helps you get a picture, but this is probably somebody with a means. And they let him down right in front of Jesus. Now notice what Jesus did. Next verse. And when he saw their faith. Now who is there? We always interpret it as the four guys lowering him down. But it's a whole group. It's the paralyzed guy as well. When he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. We conclude that when Jesus said that, that this man who was paralyzed had just as much faith as his friends. And when Luke referred to their faith, this man was included. But what kind of faith was it? This is the important thing. What kind of faith was it? Would he have forgiven their sins if their faith was only, well, this guy can heal? Remember, they're listening to his teaching. He's teaching, we, we saw the summary of his teaching in Luke chapter 4, verse number 18, right? He's telling them how poor they are in their sins, how desperate they need salvation. And they had faith in him. They had a repentant faith. And so they all had saving faith. They must have heard his preaching and struggled with the weight of their sin. Their blind eyes have been opened to spiritual truth. And Jesus saw this, and so he said, your sins be forgiven. And so the first thing he does is he gives them salvation. Why did he give them salvation? Because he saw the kind of faith that these men had. It was terrible to suffer paralysis and beg for your living, but it's far worse to suffer spiritual effects of sin. And this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to earth to forgive sin. This, the forgiveness of sin is by far a greater gift that Jesus came to offer. No one has ever been forgiven apart from saving faith. And no one's ever forgiven apart from repentance. Repentance and faith go together, don't they? They're, they're inseparable. And so we know that if Jesus forgave this man's sins, he believed that God would forgive and that he had a penitent heart. This man saw, that Jesus saw this man's heart and he saw the, in the man's heart a longing to be forgiven and so he forgave his sins. Remember what the common belief was during this time? The common belief was who sinned, this man or his parents. Remember that? And so physical ailment 
was always connected to spiritual sin. So this man grew up under that system, and by God's grace, God opened his heart to understand how dead he was in sin, how poor he was in sin, and he knew that Jesus was the only way that he was going to get saved from that sin. And so what did Jesus do? He saved him. Now what was the reaction? Verse number 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now just stop right there. The second question, is that not a fair question? They're actually making a statement here. Only God can forgive sins. And that's a completely accurate statement. Verse number 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or say, rise and walk? And that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. There's that word authority. We're still dealing with authority here. On earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he'd been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Jesus is arguing from lesser to greater. Which is easier? To forgive a man's sins or to heal a man? Really what he's saying, that the, the silent argument here is, only God can heal and only God can forgive sins. And so to demonstrate to you fellows that I am God, I'm also going to tell him to get up and walk. That's what he's doing. He's showing them who he is. And you know what? This is so important. Everyone who comes to Jesus must wrestle with who he is. I, I taught... Uh, a class, the theology proper in the new members class today. And everyone who comes to Jesus must wrestle with who Jesus is. Is Jesus the Son of God? Jesus works. His, his, his miracles testified to who he was. And his healing was tightly linked with the spiritual message that he proclaimed. Th- th- they were tied together. The miracles served as pictures of deeper spiritual realities. Material and spiritual realities could be compared to one another. To see his miracles meant that one was without excuse when he heard the message. And they were hearing the message. They were hearing his message, and so therefore they were without excuse because they saw the miracles as well. That's understandable, isn't it? Remember what I said earlier? Jesus was the most perfect revelation of the eternal God ever. These two types of responses to that, uh, we have two types of responses. We have the leper who knew his condition, humbled himself before Christ and was healed. We have the physical picture of the spiritual reality witnessed with the paralyzed man. The man had saving faith and and Jesus forgave his sins. But what about the Pharisees? What about the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were blind in all their self-righteousness. 
And so therefore, they're unforgiven. And one one poor sinner, one vile, wretched person, one outcast sinner with a penitent heart who desperately wants to get right in front of Jesus had his sin forgiven. Meanwhile, a group of self-righteous, self-assured, spiritually blind people did not. And that's the difference in people, isn't it? The day of your salvation, where was the weight of your sin? And when you got saved, where was the weight of your sin? I remember the day I, I trusted Christ. I've told you this story before, and I love telling the story, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you again a little bit. The night before I got saved, I came home early from a party because I was afraid I was going to die not knowing if I was a, a Christian or not. I laid in bed awake almost the whole night. 3 a.m., I pray, God, if I'm not a sinner, please show me. I was weighed down with the reality of sin. When I got saved that morning, that Sunday morning in my church, the weight was completely lifted. The weight of sin, the weight of condemnation, the, the weight of not knowing my eternal destination, gone. Because that's what Jesus does. Paralytic, weighed down, not only weighed down, but physically he could do nothing about it. And with a word, Jesus forgave his sins, and with another word, had him up, and he was no longer burdened, no longer uh, paralyzed in sin, but rather running around rejoicing. The Bible says what? Glorifying God. That's the compassionate God that we serve. Isn't that wonderful? Anyone who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus I can do nothing about my sinful condition. I can do nothing to change my eternal destiny. But you can lift the weight of my sin. And you can forgive my sin. And you can give me a new des destiny, a new place to go, heaven. And it's all on you. And I want to turn from my sin. He's the compassionate God who will do it immediately. And the weight can be gone. These Pharisees were self-righteous. And anyone who comes to God is like later on we'll see in Luke. Like the tax collector. Who the Bible says he was beating his breast and he was forgiven. The Pharisee who told God how good he was was not forgiven. Two kinds of people get in front of Jesus. The self-righteous and the wretched. The wretched are forgiven. The self-righteous are deluded and damned. And here's the thing about the Pharisees. I want to close. They spoke better than they believed. 
In, the, in a way, they were right. Uh, sin is an offense to a holy, righteous God, so only God can forgive a sinner. But this just shows that someone who can have the right theological position and not have a right relationship with God. The scribes and the Pharisees failed to recognize that God is the eternal Son. Now, when I say recognize, I don't necessarily mean they didn't know He was the Son of God. I'm saying they failed to recognize. They knew He was the Son of God. They didn't want to recognize that fact because they knew Scripture. The scribes and Pharisees failed that. This is why they accused Him of blasphemy. By forgiving people's sins, Jesus was effectively proclaiming that He was God. By performing this miracle, Jesus proved for sure that He was the Son of God. At the beginning of this narrative, do you remember what Luke said? Verse number 17, the power of the Lord was with Jesus for healing. This power included the power and authority to heal paralysis. And if Jesus had the power and authority to do that, he also has the power and authority to forgive sinners. There's no disability that he cannot heal. There's no sinner that he cannot save. He is the Son of God, and he has the power to save. And my one question for you today is, have you been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ? Do you know 100% sure that you are on your way to heaven because you know without a doubt that Jesus saved your repentant heart and you have saving faith and God has confirmed that in your heart, that you are on your way to heaven and it's not because of your righteous deeds, it's because of His grace wherewith He saved you. If you do not know that, you can know that today. Let us pray. Frankly, Lord, I feel like I stumbled all the way through this message. But the message is a powerful message of the saving nature of Jesus Christ. Yes, He can heal our physical bodies, but more importantly, He heals us and cleanses us from every sin and all unrighteousness, draws us near to the kingdom of God, and makes us part of his eternal inheritance, heirs of the faith. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for. We praise Jesus for his saving work. In Christ's name, amen.